remind uh, this family dinner this week, Tuesday and Wednesday we're doing two because sometimes it can get crowded in here. If Stonebridge is your church, we need you to come. So if, if you consider us your folks, we would love to see you on Tuesday or Wednesday night. You can sign up out front or online. If you're considering Stonebridge being your church, you're absolutely welcome to come as well. It's not exclusive, but we are. there's some things that we want to say um, to the body moving forward into the fall. So uh, you can, again, sign up with Kim outside or you can sign up online with us. So Genesis 25, we've been looking at Abraham. We're transitioning to Isaac. He gets very little press. Long time waiting for him to be born. Very little um, information about his life. Last week we looked at he and Rebecca and their marriage, which really he has very little to do with. His father, Abraham, sends a servant to Rebecca, brings her back. Today we're going to look at two of Abraham's children, Ishmael and Isaac, and their children. So this is a bit of a family tree Sunday. We're going to move through Ishmael pretty quick, and we're going to spend our time on um, Isaac's kids, Jacob and Esau. So this is starting in verse 12. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Ishmael, whom Sarah's slave Hagar the Egyptian bore to Abraham. Y'all remember that story? These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in order of their birth. Now I'm going to skip all of those names. Down at verse uh, 16. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the twelve tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go toward Asher, and they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. If you remember, when Hagar got kicked out of her house by Sarah, she's in the desert, and she feels like, it's done, she's going to die, an angel appears to her and says, no, you're going to be okay, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be, if you remember that phrase, a wild donkey of a man, is what he says, what this angel says about Ishmael, and he's going to live in hostility towards his brothers. And if you look, the tribes of Israel and the, the, tribes, of Israel and the tribes of Ishmael, they, are, they live in hostility constantly. Even to this day, there's still hostility between those two families. So that's just a, a fulfillment of that prophecy given. Right over here on the side, we're going to come back to that. Ishmael was not chosen. He was not selected by God to be the one through whom his promises would come. That doesn't mean Ishmael wasn't blessed. We see here, he had a massive influence. Twelve nations come from him. He was blessed. He had an opportunity to have a relationship with God if he so chose, but he was not chosen. And we'll see that theme coming through here. Verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. So this Isaac's only son born to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac became, or excuse me, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel of the Aramean from Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean. That's what we looked at last week. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, just like his mother uh, had a difficult time conceiving, so did his wife. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people uh, will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So Rebekah has a difficult time conceiving. Isaac prays for her. She does conceive. She conceives twins, and there's some turmoil in her belly. So that word jostle, we think of that um, in line, I'm trying to make my way through, much stronger than that. Violent struggle would be another way 
of understanding that word jostling. They were going at it in the womb. There's a family uh, who comes to church here. They come at nine, and they have twins. And they said, that, I said, is that normal? And she said, well, we have one who was active and one who wasn't, and the active one you know, pounced on the inactive one for nine months in the womb. I don't know if that's typical twin behavior, but there's enough going on here that Rebecca says, what is going on? She's concerned, and so she asks God what's happening, and God reveals to her, here's what's going on. What's going on in your womb is a picture of what's going to play out in history. Each one of these sons, we know their names will be Esau, the oldest, Jacob, the youngest. Each one of these sons will have a nation come from him. Esau, the nation's Edom, E-D-O-M. Jacob, the nation is Israel. Each one of those nations, they're not going to get along. And as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that there is hostility between those two nations, and Israel almost always comes out on top. There's that whole idea of the older being serving the younger, which was against custom. I think it was called primogenitor was the, the law, this ancient law that the firstborn kind of got the best stuff. They got a larger inheritance and they were the ones um, through whom the family line would pass. And so to choose the younger goes against culture. And you'll see that throughout the Old Testament. Isaac was born second, Ishmael was first. Jacob was born second. Esau was first. Judah was born fourth, that's who the tribe that Jesus comes from. Joseph, who's placed in a very high position in Egypt, highest second to Pharaoh, was born 11th. Even David, who becomes a king, the greatest king, I would say, in the history of Israel, is born last in his family, youngest in his family, not first. So throughout the Old Testament, you see God not choosing the eldest, not choosing the first. I think what's going on there, the the theological word is election. God makes a choice, and he makes a choice based on him, He doesn't make a choice based on them. He just picks, and he picks who he picks for particular tasks. He chose David, not any of his older brothers, to be king because he did. Because David was best suited for it, because God just decided. We don't know. He just made the choice, and David winds up being the best suited for it. He chooses Paul, Saul. He chooses Mary. We see him choosing Jacob instead of Esau when they're still in the womb, and they haven't done anything good or bad. When Paul is talking about this verse in Romans, that's what he says. When they hadn't done anything at all, God chose Jacob. He picked him. He elected him for a particular purpose. It doesn't mean Esau was cursed. Far from it. Esau lived a very blessed life. Esau absolutely had opportunity to have a relationship with God. But when it came to God's plan, this particular plan required a particular person. And God said, I'm going to pick Jacob. And I think the reason he picked the younger was just to say, Because, because this is rooted in my choosing, not birth order, not ethnicity, not ability, not skill. It's not rooted in any of those things. We're going to see Jacob's character. He is not a fine, upstanding citizen. It's not even rooted in his character. It's rooted in God's choice. And so what that does for us, I hope, is encourage you. We're going to talk in a few minutes about the fact that God has elected you for certain things as well. I don't necessarily know what those things are. Most likely the things he has elected you to are not as significant as the thing he elected Jacob to, for sure. However, still very important things. And what I want you to hear is he picked you because he did. And you being in that spot is because he chose to put you in that spot. It's not based on your track record. It's not based on your resume. It's not based on anything external, any factors. Like He's not not looking at your history and saying, okay, you'll be great for this. 
He put you there because he put you there. And I hope that gives you freedom and confidence to live fully into the spots, where that, the things that God has elected you to do. Because it's not based on you, it's based on him. Verse 24, when the time came for uh, Rebekah to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. That's what every mom wants to hear. What'd she look like? A bear. So they named him Esau. Esau is a word play on the word hairy. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So they waited 20 years. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah waited 20 years uh, to conceive and give birth to Jacob and Esau. Esau's named, again, based on his appearance. Jacob's name based on what he did. This Jacob's grabbing the heel. That's a Hebrew idiom for deceive, for um, one who deceives. And you'll see as we look at Jacob's life, that is definitely a characteristic that is true of him. Verse 27, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Edom means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. We don't know how old the boys are at this point. I would say young men more than boys are able to negotiate the sale of this birthright without their parents' involvement and their parents can't go back on it. Some of you have kids, you know your kids trade and you go in and veto the trade because the older one always takes advantage of the younger one. That's not, it's not here. It's a legal negotiation and it sticks. Jacob gets it. What's a birthright? We don't know everything it entails, but a few things. Spiritually, Genesis 12, 3, through, you, through your descendants, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. Esau gave that up. He gave up the opportunity to be the one through whom God would bless all the nations of the earth. We know in terms of family, firstborn, then you're, you're put up on a pedestal. You're the one that carries on your father's name. He gave that up. Financially, you got a double portion. If Isaac has $9, Esau gets 6 and, and Jacob gets 3 that's the way that works. You get twice as much, and we know Isaac was, he had way more than $9. He was loaded. Everything Abraham had went to Isaac as his sole heir. And so we're talking about a massive estate, massive estate, livestock, gold and silver, and servants. And Esau gives all of that up for a bowl of beans. That's what he does. He despises, those are the beans. The parsley is what puts it over the top to me. <laughs> Can you imagine? The Bible says he despised, he undervalues his birthright. You see something about Esau's character. He's impulsive, short-sighted. You see something about Jacob's. He's cold and he's calculating. But again, the, the, the negotiation is final. We'll see when we look a little bit more at these guys in a couple of weeks. There's... There's still a blessing out here, and Jacob winds up stealing that from his brother 
as well. But this really has to do with his place as the firstborn. He, Esau willingly gives all of it away to Jacob in exchange for one meal. So the question for us quickly becomes, what have you done with your birthright? Have you sold your birthright? The electing piece, that's God. That's above our pay grade. He decides. He decides what he's elected us, what he's selected us to do. The question for us is, well, what am I doing with that election? What am I doing with the, with the thing that he's picked me for? And we're going to look at this in two ways. There's multiple ways we can look at this. I'm just going to pick two for the sake of time. One is, has to do with your character, and one has to do with your calling. When it comes to your character, you have a, there's a birthright for you. There's something that God has said, hey, you can inherit this. Romans 8.29, this is one of our favorite verses. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That's the key phrase for us. Predestined, so that's something He decided beforehand. It's your inheritance. As a son or a daughter of God, you get to, you have the privilege and the opportunity to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. So what we're talking about is, it's who you are. This is how you reflect the attributes of God. Not God's omniscience or omnipotence. Those things can't be reflected. It's how you reflect the personal attributes of God. God is merciful, so He wants me to be merciful. God is gracious, so He wants me to be gracious. God is kind, He wants me to be kind. God is holy, He wants me to be holy. God is just, He wants me to be just. That's what it means to be conformed into the image of Jesus. If God were to crack open your chest and look at your heart, what He wants to see is, what's it shaped like? Is it shaped like the heart of Jesus? Are you reflecting the attributes of God to other people? The fruit of the Spirit is what I think of. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Are those things evident in increasing measure in your life? It's a family resemblance, a family likeness. You've been adopted into the family of God. I've been adopted into the family of God. And I should look like Him. Take on His character. Look like my Father. It's an identity issue for us. That's part of your inheritance as a son or a daughter. What he said is, this is on the table for you. This is what I want to do. But, but from before you said yes to me, I'd already decided this is what I want to do in your life. I want to make you as much like Jesus as possible. I don't know if that sounds like a good deal to you or not. Jesus lived life better than anyone ever. He had more influence than any person has ever had in the history of the world. He lived with more He lived better connected to the Father than anybody in the history of the world. His relationships were full of joy and peace. He encouraged. He healed. He lived with purpose. If you look at the way he lived, wisest man who ever lived, still quoted all over the world. Hundreds of millions of people based their life on the things that he said. He lived life better than anyone And what God has said is, hey, I want to make you like him. I want to make you like the guy that lived life better than anyone. Who does not want that? And we trade it for a bowl of beans. I don't know what you trade it for. For many of us, it's comfort. The words that God uses when it comes to conforming us to the image of Jesus, when it comes to working on our character, working on our heart, a lot of them are not fun words. Discipline, nobody wants. Pruning, painful refining, that's a process of heating up metal to the point that the impurities rise to the surface so you can skim them off. None of that is enjoyable. And so for many of us, the idea of saying, yes, make me like Jesus, okay. The process, not so much. 
And so we trade Jesus' character for our comfort. Not in every instance, but in the places where we're most stubbornly resistant to the work of God. At some point, we just get tired. As we look at Jacob's life, you'll realize this, this deceitful, cunning, scheming part of him, God has to get at. And it takes a process, it's years for him. 14 or 15 years, very painful years. Ultimately, he literally wrestles with God and has to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. That's what it gets to for Jacob. This thing that we see at birth is so deeply rooted in him, so difficult for him to, a, to come to a place where he says, I'm going to trust God to take care of me instead of me trying to scheme and con my way forward. That is so deeply embedded in him, it takes a wrestling match with God where God touches his hip and says, you're going to limp for the rest of your life because I want you to remember. I want you to remember to trust and rely upon me. It's painful. And for some of us, that's, that's where we are. We all have, it's not everything. It's one or two things that are so deeply embedded in who we are. We don't even recognize it's our flesh. It's just the way we make it through life. Stereotype. The pretty girl who bats her eyes. That's how she makes it through life. She never gets a ticket. She never, it doesn't matter if her homework's late. She's able to charm her way, her feminine wiles. She can get through everything. It's a stereotype. That's flesh. That's something that God has to change. And that can be very difficult if that's how you've survived for 20 or 30 or 40 years. It can be painful to have that thing worked out of you. Sometimes it's easier to say, you know what, I'm not as interested in Jesus' character I'll take my comfort. And then we justify it by saying, I'm good. I'm good. When it comes to our lifestyle, we tend to look up at people who have more than us, and it causes us to covet. When it comes to our character, we tend to look, people, look down. We look at people who we see as having a poorer character than us, and it makes us complacent. Well, I'm not Hitler. That's the standard. Hey, Mom, I want you to meet my new boyfriend. Well, how is he? Well, he's not Hitler. Oh, great, bring him in. That's all we're looking for. Hey, I want to hire this new person. What can you tell me about him? Well, they're not as bad as Hitler. Is that all it takes? We, when it comes to character, we tend to look at people who we would say their character is worse than ours, and we use that to justify not, not growing in our own hearts. We use that to become complacent. Better, if you want to look at your lifestyle, look at people who don't have it as well as you. And allow that to cause you to be content. And when it comes to your character, look at someone who you're striving to be like and let that spur you on to growth. Don't look at Hitler. He's not the standard. Look at someone who you could say, I'm going to imitate them as they're imitating Jesus. And let that spur you on to love and to good deeds. So when it comes to your character, the inheritance, the promises, hey, I want to make you as much like Jesus as possible. To me, the thing that gets in the way often is our own comfort because that can be a difficult and painful process on some levels. And the way we justify the trade, his character for my comfort, is I say, I'm good. I'm, I'm doing better than most. I'm fine where I am. That type of thing. So my question to you, if I were to give you a note card today and I were to say, where is God working in your heart? What element of your character is he currently molding and shaping? What would you say? If you don't have one, don't feel guilty. Just start praying this prayer. 15 seconds. God, I want you to conform me into the image of Jesus. Show me the place that you want to start. That's it. Twice a week. 
pray that prayer. God, conform me into the image of Jesus. Show me the place where you want to start. Where he wants to start may not be where you think he needs to. But you give him the freedom. Jeremiah 18, there's this picture. I think it's called At the Potter's House. Jeremiah sees this picture of a potter working some clay on a wheel. And it's this molding and shaping. And that's what we want to say. God, you're the potter here. So you mold me and shape me how you see fit. What we don't want to do is become so resistant to his work that he can't use his hands anymore and he's got to use a hammer and a chisel. No fun for anybody. So by praying that prayer, what you're doing is you're making yourself soft in his hands so he can do the work. One of the things about the things that God has predestined is they're going to happen. And so if he said, I predestined you to be conformed into the image of Jesus, that's the direction he's moving in your life, and you don't want to be resisting that. That's the definition of swimming upstream. So what we want to do is get on board with that and say, God, this is what you want to happen in my life. This is what part of my birthright, part of my inheritance as a son or a daughter. So show me. What's next? What do we need to work on now? Is it my temper? Is it lack of patience? Is it my sarcasm? What is it? What in me? Am I too judgmental? Am I too soft? What are the things about me that you're wanting to change? What's next for me? Recognizing that whatever that process is, no matter how difficult or painful, it's all for the end of making you look more like Jesus, which is going to help you live your life better. So your character one. Second, calling. Another aspect of your birthright. Ephesians 2.10, y'all know this verse. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There you have that idea, something He's done in advance. This is your birthright, your inheritance as a son or daughter of God. As He says, I've elected you, I've picked you to do certain things. I picked David to be a king. I picked Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I picked Mary to be the mother of Jesus. I picked Jacob. I picked Isaac. I picked Abraham, I picked Noah, I picked Moses, and he picked you. He picked you for something. He picked you for these good works. What do those things look like? That's how, you're, uh, it's how you cooperate with Him. It's how you get on mission with God. It's how you participate in the mission of God. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. He's still seeking and saving. And He also came to establish His kingdom, the rule and reign of God in our community. Those are the things that Jesus is doing. And He said, hey... That's the family business. And because you've been adopted into the family, then you've got a part to play in this business. It's what you do. It's your activity. And every one of you has something. There's good works that God has created in advance for you to do that contribute to what He is doing in our community. They contribute to seeking and saving the lost. They contribute to establishing His his kingdom wherever it is that He plants us. He's elected you, selected you, for something. And for many of us, we trade that as well. And it's not necessarily for our comfort. This is a strong word. It's for counterfeits. It's for counterfeits. We trade good works for a good life on a regular basis. Instead of living into the good works that God has for us, we say, you know what? I'm just going to settle for the good life that I can build for myself. Sometimes it's safety. Ten of the eleven Disciples, take Judas out of the picture, were martyred. John, the 11th, was sent in exile. It very well could be that the good works God asked for you to do will cost you. Those are extreme examples, but that's on the table. He picked them. 
Jesus went and prayed. And the next day, He came down from the mountain and He picked these twelve. And ten of them died. Were killed in obedience to Him. Could be the thing for us. But we trade good works for a good life. For some of us, it's our career. I've got to build this thing. I've got bills to pay. I've got obligations to meet. Let me, let me just get to this certain spot. And then I can focus on whatever God's calling me to do. But right now, I've got to be all about my job. So as it's our family, it's just where we are. That's where all my attention's going. That's where all my focus is going. I can worry about the kingdom when they graduate, which for me, I don't know when that is. Ours are so spread out. I cry when I think of how old I'll be when our last one graduates. I'll be too old to do anything. I won't. You're never too old to do anything. But that mentality, nothing wrong with family, nothing wrong with career. These things aren't mutually exclusive. But it's the, it's the idea that I'm going to say, I'm going to put calling on hold for these other things right now. Will you throw me that book? This is from John Stott. He's dead. Um, died a couple of years ago. You can usually trust people who are dead. They can't do things that embarrass you later for quoting them. This book is called Christian Mission in the Modern World. It was written in 1975, so forgive some of the language. It's dated. But I want you to hear what he says about this. I begin with vocation, by which I mean a Christian's life work. We often give the impression that if a young Christian man is really keen for Christ, he will undoubtedly become a foreign missionary. That if, that if he is not quite as keen as that, he will stay at home and become a pastor. That if he lacks the dedication to be a pastor, he will no doubt serve as a doctor or a teacher, 